The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking on something a little bit fishy. We're talking with Kristen O'Brien, who studies the ice fish of Antarctica, and Heidi Golden, who studies grayling living in Arctic rivers and lakes. Then, Rochelle Saunders speaks with Jonathan Balcombe about his new book, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm your host, Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. I'm here today with Kristen O'Brien, a professor of biology who studies how fish have adapted to the freezing waters of the Antarctic Ocean. She made me think of something I've never thought of before, how fish in icy cold water stay active instead of becoming frozen fishsicles. Kristen, thank you so much for making the time for us. All right. Well, thanks for inviting me. So let's start with the very basics, just to refresh all of our memories. Um, what does it mean to be cold-blooded like a fish as opposed to being warm-blooded like a person? So yes, fish are cold-blooded animals, which means that they're the same temperature as their environment. So a fish swimming around uh, in a lake at four degrees Celsius in the, in the wintertime is four degrees Celsius. And if the temperature increases to 20 degrees Celsius in the summer, then it's 20 degrees Celsius. And that's unlike a warm-blooded animals, an animal like ourselves, which can maintain their body temperature regardless of what the environmental temperature is, which is very convenient if you're living in Alaska or working in the Antarctic in the wintertime. So that was one thing uh, that really interested me about the biology of fishes early on was the fact that these fish, some fish can main, can endure you know, 14 to 16 degree changes in their body temperatures that occur during uh, on a yearly cycle, and they're fine. You know, whereas when we uh, get a fever, if we get sick, and our body temperature increases by just a few degrees Celsius, we become very uncomfortable. And a 14 degree change in our body temperature, of course, would be lethal. And what I found particularly interesting about your research is that you study these fish and you study kind of the coldest of the cold <laughs> end because there's freezing and then there's really, really freezing. Right. How cold is the water in Antarctica? Yeah, so the, the temperature of the Southern Ocean hovers right around minus 1.8 degrees Celsius. So, yes, it's very icy cold waters. And the only reason that water is not ice is because there's salt in it, right? Yes, that's correct. And how does that compare to more temperate waters in, say, mm. the Atlantic off the coast of the eastern seaboard? Mm. Well, uh, the temperatures there, I don't uh, know quite off the top of my head, but I would guess that, you know, they're somewhere between 10 and, and 20 degrees Celsius. That's a lot warmer. Yes. <laughs> And what would happen to a normal cold-blooded animal such as, say, a trout when it's placed in this negative one, negative two degree water in Antarctica? Uh -huh. Yeah, well, the one big problem for one big challenge for fish that are swimming around in this icy cold water is when they come in contact with ice. So if they ingest ice crystals, then those ice crystals 
uh, can begin to grow. And of course that could become lethal, but fortunately they have, uh, they have antifreeze proteins, which prevent the growth of those ice crystals and prevent them from freezing. And there are also other adaptations that allow Antarctic fishes to survive and thrive in these really icy waters. For example, they have proteins that are more flexible that allow them to function at cold temperature. And they have membranes, which are made up of lipids that remain fluid even at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius. So if you took a trout and you threw him into the Southern Ocean, if he came into contact with ice, he'd become an ice fishicle. <laughs> Uh, and then his proteins would their proteins wouldn't function properly. Their membranes would become more rigid, and it would be uh, it would not be a happy ending. <laughs> and I had no idea until I read your research just how many adaptations fish really needed to adapt to this kind of mm-hmm. climate. Um, it turns out that there are fish who live in this incredibly freezing water all the time. Mm -hmm. And so the listeners may have heard before, and and you mentioned that some of these animals have a a natural kind of Mm antifreeze mechanism in their blood. What is this and how does it work? So Antarctic fishes, as well as some Arctic fish as well, have antifreeze glycoproteins. So these are proteins that bind to the surface of ice crystals and prevent them from growing, from getting any bigger and disrupting the normal function of the animals. And yes, this was a key, uh, a key adaptation that allowed these animals to survive as the Southern Ocean started cooling about 20 million years ago. And the reason they stop them from doing this is because ice actually forms what we call a nucleation point, right? Right, so that's correct. Ice mm-hmm. forms more ice. <laughs> exactly. Um, but this isn't the only adaptation available. Can you tell me what an ice fish is? Mm-hmm. So an ice fish is a fish that doesn't have hemo- the oxygen binding protein hemoglobin. Uh, and it has, it's called an ice fish because it really does look like an ice sculpture. They're quite beautiful. Uh, and ice fish are very unique animals. They are the only vertebrates in the world that don't have hemoglobin. And there are 16 species of ice fish. 15 of them live south of the circumpolar current in the Southern Ocean, and one lives uh, in the Straits of Magellan. And to remind people who may not have been exposed to this for mm-hmm. a long time, what is hemoglobin and what does it do? Mm-hmm. So hemoglobin is an oxygen-binding protein. It's the protein in your blood that makes your blood red. It's red because it has iron at the center of it. And it binds oxygen in humans. It binds oxygen at the lungs and then delivers it to tissues throughout the body. And uh, in your tissues, oxygen is used to oxidize or burn the food stuff that you eat, whatever you ate for breakfast, and convert it into a usable form of energy called ATP. And in fish, it transports oxygen from the gills to the tissues. So you can think of, of hemoglobin as a surfboard that's carrying oxygen throughout your body. And hemoglobin binds oxygen extremely effectively, right? It does. It binds it and it releases it as well. It releases it at the tissues. And if it does this very effectively, mm-hmm. how are ice fish able to manage without it? <laughs> so the, the cardiovascular system of ice fishes has become 
adapted to the loss of hemoglobin and is markedly different from that of red-blooded fish. So the loss of hemoglobin results in a 90% decrease in their blood oxygen carrying capacity. So they're only carrying 10% of the oxygen around in their circulatory system that a red-blooded fish is. And they enhance their ability to carry oxygen, one, by having a lot of blood plasma. So they have a a large blood volume because all the oxygen is dissolved in the blood plasma, which is the watery part of the blood. They also have large hearts to pump this large volume of blood And they have big pipes. So they have large blood vessels to accommodate the large volume and also to minimize the work of the heart uh, pumping that large volume of blood. That must make for a very uh, messy dissection, (laughs) all that blood. Uh, Actually, to the contrary. Actually, they're quite clean because you cut them open and the blood's not red. (laughs) So you can't really see it. (laughs) I never (laughs) thought of it that way. Uh, But part of this is helped by the fact that there's actually a lot of oxygen in the Antarctic Ocean, right? Exactly. Why so, is it there? Yeah. So oxygen solubility uh, in a watery in, in water is inversely proportional to temperature. So the colder the water, the more oxygen that's dissolved in it. So these fish have these gigantic pipes. They have big pipes. They have mm-hmm. big hearts. They have lots of blood. Does this allow them to be very active? What kind of niche do these fish fill? Mm -hmm. Uh, So no, these fish are not the Michael Phelps of the fish world. Uh, They tend to be benthic sedentary fish, which means that they sit at the bottom, they're perched up on their big pelvic fins, and many of them are sit and wait predators, so they sit there and just wait for dinner to swim by. (laughs) So like snakes, but... (laughs) Yeah, so they'll ingest a big meal and then that'll carry them over for a while. And in your work, I saw that you mentioned a few times this lack of hemoglobin is actually something we call a disaptation, a mutation Mm -hmm. that's actually worse than the form that it adapted from. Why might this mutation exist? Well, it's thought that the loss of of hemoglobin was a, a random mutation. So it occurred because... There was a mutation in the DNA that that led to the loss of hemoglobin, and it persisted in these animals, or these animals survived despite lacking hemoglobin because of the conditions that were in place when that mutation arose. So there were, so one, the water was very cold. So this uh, mutation is thought to have arisen sometime between 2.2 and 5 million years ago. And by this time, the temperature of the Southern Ocean was less than 5 degrees Celsius. Another reason that it's thought these animals survived is because there's not a lot of competition in the Southern Ocean at that time. So they weren't having to compete against Michael Phelps (laughs) to get their dinner. Um, And there was lots of habitat that was available as well. So keep in mind that a mutation uh, doesn't have to be beneficial to persist in a population. It can be neutral. And it's thought that the loss of hemoglobin is an example of a neutral mutation that doesn't affect the animal's fitness. That's how I like to describe uh, natural selection. It is not survival of the fittest. It is survival of the good enough. Right, exactly. <laughs> and these ice fish have bodies that are different in other ways as well. Can you tell me a little bit about their mitochondria? Mm-hmm. The mitochondria 
is the organelle in your cell or a compartment in your cell that's often referred to as the powerhouse. So it's that part in your cell that uses oxygen. It's why we need oxygen. And again, it uses that oxygen to to burn up the food that we eat and convert it into ATP that our bodies can use as a fuel. So typically, the density of mitochondria or the amount of mitochondria, say, in your muscle is positively correlated with your demand for ATP or how much ATP you need. So, for example, if you went out and started training for a marathon, your demand for ATP to fuel your running would increase and your cells would start building some more mitochondria. So really active muscles, things like hummingbird flight muscles, have lots and lots of mitochondria. So about 50% of their flight muscle is occupied by mitochondria. And And what was somewhat surprising when scientists first started looking at the muscle of ice fishes, again, these are mostly very sedentary animals, they found that in their muscles they had really high densities of mitochondria. Not too much, not too different from that of hummingbirds. So somewhere around 35 to 40% of their muscle can be displaced by mitochondria. And what we have learned over the years that these mitochondria not only produce ATP, but they're also used as a way to store oxygen in the cell. So mitochondria are very lipid rich. Their membranes are made up of polyunsaturated, are are made up of um, phospholipids. And those lipids can, uh, and oxygen is, is soluble in lipids, so oxygen can be stored within the lipid membranes of mitochondria, and they also actually sort of uh, are used as a highway for the movement of oxygen through the tissues. Kristen, these ice fish that we've been talking about live in a very remote part of the world, but it seems like there's no part of the world that is quite remote enough for us. Yeah. What have people been doing with ice fish and their habitat? Mm. Yes, that's right. Um, Antarctica is facing some of the same challenges that all other parts of the world are facing, in particular with climate change. So the the western Antarctic Peninsula, where I work, is the fastest warming region in the southern hemisphere. And that is certainly a challenge for these animals that have evolved for millions of years in a very cold environment. And another challenge faced by these animals is commercial fishing. Uh, so sometimes uh, folks are surprised when they hear that there's commercial fishing in the Antarctic because they consider it, they think of it as such a pristine environment. But unfortunately, that's not the case. You work on these animals at the Palmer Station. Mm-hmm. What exactly are you studying about ice fish? Mm-hmm. So we, uh, as as well as other scientists, are trying to determine what is the capacity of these animals to withstand increases in temperature, and do they have the the capacity to make the the adjustments necessary in their physiology to withstand increases in temperature. And I know we've been talking a little bit about fishing. Have you have you eaten one? I have. <laughs> How was it? Uh, Well, when we cooked it in butter and garlic, it tasted like butter and garlic. (laughs) Oh, that's kind of disappointing. Is it it flaky? Is it like Chilean sea bass? uh, Oh, I haven't had had Chilean sea bass. Uh, But no, the ice fishes are are fairly bland, I think, because they don't have hemoglobin. They also, we haven't talked about this, but they also don't have 
the intracellular oxygen binding protein myoglobin either. Um, so they're they're not incredibly f- flavor flavorful. No. But these ice fish seem really fascinating, just because their biology is is mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, but why is it important to study them? Why should we be w- working to learn more about them? Mm-hmm. Well, one because they're just fascinating animals in their own right. Um, but also because they're a natural genetic knockout for understanding hemoglobin and the function of hemoglobin. Now, scientists uh, often use rats or mice, and they knock out hemoglobin to understand to, ga- to gain a better understanding of its function. Uh, but here we have a natural genetic knockout to do that. And you mentioned in one of your recent publications that some of these ice fish and related fish might be useful to understand human disease, um, mm-hmm. especially bone density loss. Mm-hmm. Why are they useful for that? Yeah, so uh, Antarctic notithinoids are, are different from some other fish in that they don't have swim bladders. So swim bladders are like a balloon that some fish have that they can blow up with air that increases their buoyancy and allows them to rise to, to rise up in the water column or to adjust their position in the water column. But Antarctic fishes don't have uh, a swim bladder. Instead, to increase their buoyancy, number one, they're fatty. <laughs> it helps them float. And number two, they, they have bones that are not quite as dense as, as tempered fish. And ice fishes in particular uh, don't have very dense bones. So again, it's a great model system for understanding uh, how things can function. Well, with all that extra fat on them, I'm surprised it didn't <laughs> improve the flavor a little bit. <laughs> I guess it's probably good, though, in the long run that they're not so tasty. Kristen, thank you so much for making the time for us. Your research is absolutely fascinating. Uh, we will be linking to Kristen O'Brien's research on ice fish at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we'll be speaking with another scientist who studies fish at the opposite end of the Earth and find out how Arctic grayling keep going when their streams and lakes freeze solid. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm here with Heidi Golden, a graduate student in aquatic ecology based at the University of Connecticut. She studies a fish called the Arctic grayling, where it lives, and how it interacts with its environment. Heidi, thank you so much for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I always thought, before I went to the Arctic recently, I always thought that winter wouldn't really be a big deal for fish, because they're in the water, right? And the water is fine. (laughs) Until it freezes. (laughs) But winter in the Arctic presents some very unique challenges to being a fish. And I was wondering if you could go over what happens to fresh water in the winter in the Arctic. 
Okay. Well, as, as you could imagine, uh, when the temperature becomes minus 40 outside, the water in that environment freezes pretty solid. <laughs> so if you're a fish in the Arctic, uh, you have some choices. You, you either stay in an area where uh, the water is deep enough that it's not going to freeze, um, or, well, really, that's it. You have to be in an area that's deep enough that it's not going to freeze, unless you you migrate out into the ocean or something like that. But for fish that are exclusively freshwater, they need to be in a, an area that's going to not freeze and also not go what we call anoxic, meaning that the oxygen in the in the water will will maintain your survival too. So that's really what they need to do, and they need to go into a state of um, we would call it like torpor, or uh, it's not hibernation, but it's it's very low activity, uh, and that's what they do. They just sit there and they wait it out. And if everything in my reading, I, I found that everything shallower than two meters freezes solid, and two meters is is relatively deep for a stream or a pond or something like that. Where do these fish end up going? It, exactly what you said. They go to areas, and, and we say areas that are deeper than four meters for fish survival. Uh, so you need to have a pocket of water that's going to be big enough to um, both, you know, not not freeze more than two meters because you will get two meters of ice cover on a on a lake or a pond, uh, and then also have enough unfrozen water underneath of that to not go anoxic, right? And you specifically study the Arctic grayling, which is one of those fish that actually manages to do this. Right. What are the, what is an Arctic grayling? So an Arctic grayling, it's related to salmon and trout. It's one of the, it's in the salmonid family. Um, it, it looks about the size of maybe a brook trout, if people are familiar with, with fishing and, and, um, about 18, about 18 inches or so is an average grayling size. Um, they are beautiful fish. They have large scales, but the scales are kind of iridescent. And depending on which population you're looking at, they can be from like a, a deep purple to pink uh, with pink stripes. And they have this amazing sail-like dorsal fin. So the dorsal fin is the fin that's the large fin that's on the top of a fish. And sometimes that fin extends all the way back and touches their tail. It's that long um, and some um, for some fish. And that too also has like these stripes that come up it. Uh, so it's a very striking fish. It's also really a fun fish to catch, especially if you're catching it on like a fly line or something. They'll jump out of the water and um, just give you a good fight on the fly line too if you if you enjoy fishing for sport. Um, what else could I tell you about the grayling? Well, I always wonder questions? when people study fishes uh, or species that are edible. Have you eaten one? <laughs> okay, the answer to that is yes, I have, but it was not pleasant, um, and, and not because grayling are not palatable. There, people eat them, and actually. From what I've heard from um, people who live in Alaska, that it's one of the fish that people look forward to eating because they are a spring spawning fish. So that means when they come out of their overwintering location to spawn, they travel a distance in the river and people can catch them easily. And after a long winter, 
people are really happy to get fresh fish like that, especially um, native communities. So they are very popular in that respect for, for being eaten. Um, the reason that I had a bad experience, and there's actually a story that goes along with it. Uh, I hadn't eaten a grayling just because it's my, you know, it's my study species and I really am rather fond of them, first of all. Um, I'm a vegetarian. I do eat fish, but I don't eat a lot of it. Uh, and also it's like every sample you catch, it's a, a fish for me is a sample. I, you know, I wouldn't want to waste a sample, right? But I had my advisor, my academic advisor up with me, and he was determined to eat an Arctic grayling. And so he caught one that was not within our study system. It was in a lake that was neighboring it and brought it back to the camp for dinner. And um, he was going to make a red wine reduction sauce with like some supplies we had and, and uh, had it all figured out. And he made this amazing looking dish, but he didn't scale the fish. And I mentioned just a moment ago that Arctic grayling have very large scales. I think he was used to eating trout that have very small scales and you can get away with eating some scales of trout if you don't scale your fish. But with a grayling, we've discovered that you really need to scale the fish before you cook it. <laughs> so oh, that's why dear. it's not the best experience. It, it, yeah. <laughs> Now, so, Arctic maybe grayling. some other time, but, but that time was just not good. <laughs> <laughs> maybe try it again with a skinned fish. Maybe. <laughs> and now Arctic grayling are masters of survival in this incredibly cold Arctic environment. Can you tell us how they do this? Yes, they absolutely are masters of it. And so there are on the North Slope, the area that I study, there's really only six species that are around, at least right now. So grayling are one of those six species, and they are the only one, aside from fish that will travel um, from the rivers out into the ocean, that are in the streams, right? So the streams freeze solid. Some streams will have a mixture, depending if, on how close they are to other good overwintering habitat, like big deep rivers might have more species um, diversity than the shallower streams that, that you were walking around in this, this um, summer. But in those shallow streams, because they freeze solid, you have to be able to um, either somehow resist freezing or you have to be able to move great distances to get to those locations that aren't going to freeze over winter. And so that's what grayling do. They are... they. They really traverse this aquatic landscape um, great distances to get to locations that are suitable for overwintering, for spawning in the springtime, because those locations happen to be different from the ones that are um, most suitable for the adults to overwinter in. Uh, and then to get to good feeding locations, too, because they need to gain enough resources for them to make these migrations from overwintering to spawning the next year, too and also to survive over winter and have enough fuel to produce eggs for spawning. So it's, there's a lot um, hinging on their ability to get to these really good locations. And that's how grayling um, really m manage this crazy environment. So they're kind of endurance swimmers. They sure are, yeah. Yeah, they're very good at it. But they also do have a physiological adaptation, right? They can stand some pretty low oxygen environments. They can. I don't, I have never done the research and haven't really looked into it too much to see how oxygen tolerant they are. Um, 
we know that that they can uh, survive very harsh conditions. So I'd, I'd say that they have uh, very good flexibility in the conditions that they're able to withstand. And, you know, I have kind of anecdotal evidence for that. Uh, I've been studying Arctic grayling for probably, you know, like over 20 years. And other fish that I've caught, in, I've caught just, you know, kind of um, accidentally or, you know, while trying to catch grayling, such as whitefish, uh, whitefish really in particular, they just, they're not as hardy. So the things that you can do to an Arctic grayling, you can um, anesthetize the fish and then, you know, take a, a DNA sample, you can weigh it, you can measure it, you can, you know, take its gut contents by what we call gastric lavage, do all of this stuff put it back in a bucket, let it recover, and it's off and swimming again. No problem. Sometimes if you take a whitefish and do the same thing, you anesthetize it, you look at it wrong, and it, it keels over. And that's it. <laughs> so the grayling can handle a lot. And like I said before, they're a wonderful species for answering a lot of ecological questions because of how tolerant they are to being handled and manipulated. Um, they're really just a, a great science species. I will say, having just been to Alaska and walked in some of the streams that these fish live in, I personally think they're super tough because mm -hmm. that water was really, really cold. <laughs> and probably this year it was much warmer than it... Uh, well, no, actually, you were there for a very cold year. It, it was unusually um, cool, I'd say, this summer. Would you agree? I, I It was my first experience, but I was plenty chilly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing in the Arctic is is more variability. So, um, you know, trying to time our field seasons has been extremely difficult because, you know, one year we'll have missed the spring migration because everything happened, you know, three weeks earlier than on average than you would have expected because it had been so warm that winter or that spring. Um, but then you'd have the opposite happen the next year where you you come up early, but you didn't, you know, plan that the field season is going to be oh, a week later than on average, you know, because it's too cold that year. So this um, increase in variability is a is an interesting phenomenon that we've been seeing, which makes our research in the Arctic very challenging. And you've been working with these fish and planning field seasons for a pretty long time. What are you trying to find out? We have a lot of different questions that we're trying to answer. Um, one of them in particular is, uh, you know, what's going to happen with climate change? You know, are the, is this species going to be um, able to uh, either adapt or uh, move to locations that are more suitable if if areas become unsuitable. So, you know, what, what will happen? And I'm looking at um, genetics of the species and movement patterns and um, other, you know, ecological impacts on the species. Um, I know Linda Deegan is very interested in the movement patterns because she looks at nutrient um, transport by the fish. So when they're in a stream, they're, they're eating things that are in the stream that come that are derived from nutrients that are derived from the stream. But then when they move to a, a lake, they actually take those nutrients. Um, now it's turned into body fat and uh, muscle tissue, and they move that up into a different location, say a headwater lake. And then that those nutrients then come part of that system. So that's what Linda does with her movement patterns. Um, you probably noticed some of our um, pit tag antennas that we have to track fish movement. So that's that's her work. But 
I, I work in conjunction with that and look at the genetics of the species and how movement of um, individuals affects the genetics of the species across a landscape uh, and how that might change. Um, so... And when you say that fish move and the nutrients move, you mean that fish move and they poop? (laughs) Yes, they do. They poop and they die um, and they urinate and they put their nutrients in other locations. Yes. Fun times. (laughs) You're looking at Arctic grayling, which there's not really, people do eat them, but it's not really an industrial food source Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Why is it important to know what happens to these animals? That's a really good question. And so I I mentioned a couple of times that this species is is very good for answering ecological questions, right? So, So first of all, the species in and of itself is important in that it is part of this community of organisms that survives in a very, um, harsh climate, uh, that is sort of a, one of these fringe environments that's, it's very difficult. Only six species on the North Slope of fish, um, I've mentioned before. So the grayling as a, um, a, they, they're kind of a, a conveyor belt for nutrients, moving those nutrients around this system that is very low in nutrients to begin with. Um, and so nutrients is the base of any food chain. So you need nutrients in order to have plant life and you need plant life in order to have higher trophic levels like fish and, um, and, and higher than that even. So uh, the grayling are really integral in moving these nutrients around the system uh, through from, you know, from lake to lake through the streams. And one thing that's happening in the streams uh, with climate change is that we're getting dry down of the system. So if you think about water uh, across a landscape, it, you know, it starts as rain, which rains down onto the landscape, then it moves across the land into the streams that fills up the streams and the streams flow, right? right. When you get um, climate change and very warm temperatures in the Arctic, what you end up having is a, 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 a balance shift between the rain that falls on the landscape and then the amount that the plants on the landscape suck up and put back into the atmosphere as water vapor. That's um, called um, evapotranspiration. So you have this balance between precipitation and evapotranspiration that alters the amount of water that ends up into the stream. So as the plants are sucking up more moisture off the tundra, there's less that comes down off of the landscape and ends up in the river. So what you get is drier rivers. So less flow in the rivers and, and these zones in the rivers that actually go dry. And you can imagine if you're a fish that is used to moving across the landscape to get from one place to another, from an overwintering site to a spawning ground, to a feeding location, back to its overwintering site, all the while moving nutrients around the system, which other fish in lakes depend upon. Once you hit a dry zone, that messes everything up, especially if it's at a critical time where you need to move from one location to another. And do you think that this fish species in particular is kind of going to play a very large role on the North Slope as climate change continues? I think they, they potentially could. You know, I don't, 
We don't know for sure um, how important all of that is, and that's one of the things we're trying to work out. How important is this role of fish moving nutrients across the system to maintaining um, community structure in lakes um, and larger rivers downstream? And by moving nutrients, you mean they go somewhere and they poop and they <laughs> die. <laughs> exactly. And it's actually really important for, the, for cycling of these nutrients in the system. Yeah. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for being with us. Well, you're welcome. We've linked to Heidi's research and her science blog at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, Rochelle Saunders continues our fish-flavored theme. She's speaking with Jonathan Balcombe about his book, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Every week on Science for the People, we take the latest in scientific progress and relate it to people, our friends, our families, our communities, and our society. And we give researchers, authors, and journalists the time to talk in-depth about what matters to them. If you love science but aren't satisfied with sound bites, join us again next week for Science for the People on your local radio station or anytime online at scienceforthepeople.ca. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Jonathan Balcom, the Director of Animal Sentience at the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, and the author of five books, including the newly released What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Jonathan, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, Rochelle. So this is primarily a book about fish behavior, and it turns out fish are way more diverse and interesting than I have ever given them credit for, uh, which is also kind of the other primary point of your book. Why do we underestimate or kind of ignore fish? Yeah, I, you know, I have my pet theories, and that's all they are. I don't know if anyone's ever really worked it out. I, I think the main reason is that fishes are, are physically, literally, and figuratively below the surface of our lives. They've been out of view uh, except for when they're floundering around on the ground uh, in in the air, when they're out of their element, where they're not really exactly going to be able to do the things that fishes do. And it's it's only in the last century with the advance of underwater diving and submersible technology and underwater filming equipment that uh, we've really begun to really properly probe the uh, the private lives of these creatures that were there before, before that, really pretty obscure from our view. So when we say fish, what category of creatures are we actually talking about? Yeah, we're talking about the largest, most diverse group of vertebrates on Earth, uh, and probably in history. Uh, we actually are living in an age of fishes. They're immensely successful. The bony fishes, the teleosts, have diversified hugely in the past few million years, which is a fairly short period of time in evolutionary time. And um, there are more species of, of fish than all the other vertebrates combined, estimated over 32,000, well, actually 30, over 32,000 described so far, and uh, probably a few thousand to go. Consider that the largest habitat in the world is um, the abyss, the, the deep sea ocean where the light doesn't even penetrate, and it's one of the least explored yeah, life down there is low density, but it's a huge, massive volume of habitat. So there are probably a lot of species down there to get to be discovered. Whenever James Cameron or anyone else who's doing this deep sea exploration go down there, they uh, they find new species every time they go. So in your book, you talk about two main groups of fish, the bony fish and then the card. Oh, I'm going to screw this up. The cartilaginous <laughs> group. Did I get even yeah. close? <laughs> cartilaginous. Yeah, pretty, pretty much right on. 
Yeah, there's two two groups: the the teleos, uh, the bony fish, and the um, chondrichthians or the cartilaginous ones. So, the latter group includes the sharks, the rays, and the skates. I forget how many species, but I think it's a couple of thousand. So the great bulk of the diversity is found in the teleosts, the bony, the bony fishes, and uh, they cover. They pretty much live on all habitats, uh, all, all aquatic habitats in the world, and uh, they're remarkably diverse. And part of the joy of researching and writing this book was to uncover and discover the remarkable, uh, varied, sometimes bizarre life histories. Um, perceptual abilities, sex lives, social lives, um, cognitive skills, and emotions of these uh, remarkably diverse creatures. Like you say, the term Fisher Fishes includes a lot of species. And, and like with any diversity, one thing you get is a diversity of brain power and intelligence. Um, but so people get a sense of the range uh, of intelligence. If you had to create a, a scale of the least intelligent fish on one side and the most intelligent on the other, do you have any idea of which fish would be on which side of the scale and why? Let me throw out, I've never been asked that, but let me just throw out a couple of candidates. Um, I, I'm, I feel uncomfortable particularly assigning least intelligent to an animal. Who the hell am I to say? But uh, whatever, let's just say that a, a male anglerfish. Um, these, these fishes have the, um, the distinction of having evolved in this abyss, and they, it's very hard to find females, and they have the most bizarre, probably one of the most bizarre, if not the most bizarre, sexual life histories of any animal. A male anglerfish essentially latches onto a female if and when he finds her. Uh, there's about 160 known species down there, and it would be easy to get the wrong one. So if you get the right one, you want to make sure you don't mess up, and you want to make the most of your investment. And so these anglerfishes, the males have evolved to be a, a fraction of the size of the female, sometimes a hundredth or small or less the size of the female. And when they find the female of, the right, of their own species, they bite her. They, they latch on with specialized teeth. And that's it. They're done. They stay there for the rest of their lives. They f become fused to her flesh. They inseminate her intravenously, eventually. And they literally become little appendages. And some female anglerfishes have been found with three, perhaps even more males who are like vestigial appendages attached to her. My guess is that a heck, you don't need a heck of a lot of cognition to lead a lifestyle like that once you've latched on. They have very keen senses when they're small and they're, they're looking, well, they remain small when they're before they find the female. Um, good, good vision uh, because there's a lot of light communication down there in the dark and very good smell, but they don't need those anymore either once they're latched on. So Mike, I'm surmising here, but I'm guessing that the, the cognitive life of, a, of, an angler, of an adult male anglerfish is pretty limited. Um, so, uh, so that's the, the one end. At the other end, I would suggest perhaps a grouper. This is a, a, a large, they're often large, depending on the species, chunky, bony fish of reefs. Uh, they, uh, they've been found to have remarkable um, communication skills. They actually team up with moray eels to hunt, hunt cooperatively, and they inform a moray eel, a grouper will inform one, will invite one with a special head shake or body shimmy, essentially as an invitation gesture, you know, will you come hunting with me? I'm hungry. How about you? And if the moray's in the, in the mood, they swim off together. I have to say they look a little bit like a couple of characters from a Disney film. And then they, uh, they head out over the reef and uh, they pursue fishes. And little ones who can get into the nooks and crannies of the reef can be pursued by the, the eel, who's sort of like a ferret at the sea. 
Um, but if the fish escapes to the open water, the moray is waiting to pounce. <clears throat> so this referential communication is considered very sophisticated among any animal, never mind just a fish. Um, they also will point to hidden prey if there's a moray nearby. So very deliberate, intentional behavior directed at the moray eel, and they'll sometimes go over and recruit the moray if the moray doesn't come over. They've been known to point for up to 25 minutes, so they're very patient about this. Lastly, the same, these same fishes, these groupers, will uh, some often swim up to trusted divers on reefs to receive um, caresses to get petted. And they're, they're not having any parasite removal service, which may be the root of that behavior, this mutualism, this symbiosis you find on reefs where you have cleaners and clients. They're not getting cleaned in this situation. They're simply getting stroked. And so that's a nice illustration of the, the, the lust for pleasure in a fish. That relationship between the two different species and their cooperative relationship was really an interesting part of the book. I had not heard of that before. And the idea that they kind of meet up together and then decide to go hunt, that for me was really something I hadn't even thought of before. Yeah, that's right. That kind of behavior, it, 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 it captures the notion that these animals – uh, they're not just living in the moment. They can think ahead. They can plan. Uh, they um, are aware. Uh, they have the ability to reflect on a future scenario. That's that's sort of all suggested by this behavior, which is not something we typically associate with fishes. So how do we actually judge intelligence in fish? I mean, what do we classify as an intelligence indicating behavior? Or, or I guess maybe what makes a behavior unintelligent? Yeah, I think part of the answer to that needs to be that we, we're very prone to uh, seeing intelligence through our own lens, which is natural. We are humans, uh, so we see it through our anthropocentric viewpoint. But I think it's a, that's a little um, short-sighted of us to do that. I mean, intelligence is so diverse, and animals are good at what's important to them. So, you know, we, we don't need to know where the neighboring rock pools are in an intertidal zone, for instance, but a frillfin goby who makes a living by living in those pools at low tide and sometimes has to leap to safety to avoid an octopus or what have you, they happen to be extremely good at knowing how far and in what direction a neighboring rock pool is and they can actually plop their way out to, out to the open water if they need to. Uh, a series of studies done from the 1940s into the 1970s teased that apart and showed that these these fishes do a remarkable thing. They memorize the topography of the rock pool at high tide while the water is over, and they can look down on it. And in one trial, they can uh, have it worked out in their head, make a mental map, and they can leap accurately from tide pool to tide pool when it's low tide without ending up stranded on the rocks. So that's an example of a particular form of intelligence that is that is highly developed in a very small animal is a four, four or five inch long fish. And um, it's something that they can do much better than we could do. Uh, why? Well, it's not useful for us and it is useful for them. So I think, I think sort of when we look at intelligence in another organism, we should take into account their ecology. It helps to know their biology. They may seem dumb on the surface, but if you probe into their lives and see what they do for their life history you're going to find opportunities for them to be very intelligent. In the book, you talked about an experiment with stingrays trying to get food out of a tube, which really reminded me of research I read about a few years ago on crow cognition and how crows can use tools and solve extraordinarily complex puzzles. 
Yeah, that's a great question, and, I, and it, it makes me feel like I, I'd like to go back and, and revise that section of the book and, and make that comparison, because I don't think I explicitly mentioned the crow studies. It is very similar to these crows who will fashion hooks and uh, pull pieces of meat out of tubes and that sort of thing that are otherwise inaccessible. The uh, rays, the stingrays, were not using hooks or really fashioning tools, but they did use restraint and flexible responses to the problems that were presented with them. Essentially, it was a morsel of food in a plastic PVC pipe that they could see and smell but couldn't reach physically. So they had to come up with ways of getting it, drawing it out. And uh, one way was to, well, they actually, there was a small study, I think there were five rays used, but um, they used, they were idiosyncratic, which is to say not all of them used the same method. Some of them you know, would would flap their, their fins, their big broad fins in such a way to, cre- to create a suction. Others would cause a fanning effect where they blow the morsel away. Uh, they, they then added um, um, a block, a filter block on one end of the tube, and the fish in some cases swam to the other side, uh, to the side of the filter to blow the wa- water away, which meant um, moving away from the morsel which is uh, considered to be a pretty um, sophisticated um, example of restraint and uh, problem solving. So the, the gist of that study was that, and it's the only one I know, and it was with five rays. I mean, it's, that's an illustration of how little we've probed into the capacity, cognitive capacities of these, these creatures. But the findings were, were very interesting and indicative of an animal who is aware and cognitive and intelligent and, and quite good at problem solving. And creative as well. And creative, yes, indeed, creative, because uh, partly because they, they, they use different methods. Different individuals use different methods to solve the problems. When we talk about tools, we usually mean sort of sticks or wires or rocks, but uh, fishes don't have limbs to manipulate tools in the sense that we usually think of them. So uh, when we do talk about fish using tools, what are we actually talking right. about? Right. Well, one form of tool use is the use of water as a medium to get get what you need. So some fishes blow will blow water, will use water, jets of water, either from their mouths or they can use their, their gill covers or even their fins to, to create water pressure that may, for instance, uncover um, a food item from the sand, buried in the sand below, such as a cockle shell or another mollusk. Um, other fishes will use water that they squirt. The uh, well-known angler fishes, of which there's a number of species, not angler fishes, sorry, archer fishes, they um, squirt water out of their um, especially uh, e- adapted mouths, and they use that as a projectile to uh, hunt where they can catch flying insects. They become quite skilled at aiming and predicting where the insect will be when the water arrives, and they control the uh, shape and size of the bolus of water according to the prey. Very, very sophisticated based on very close closely observed studies that have been done now. Uh, Fishes can also, of course, use their mouths to pick things up. So even though they lack grasping limbs, uh, that is a limitation, but they can carry things with their mouths. And you can watch YouTube videos of of tusk fishes and wrasses and other species uh, carrying objects. And um, in the case of the video I've seen of a tusk fish um, smashing a rock, smashing a a mollusk against a, a rock repeatedly to get at the tissue inside. So that would be an example of using a rock. It's like an anvil to uh, break open something. So I I do want to shift gears and talk a little bit about um, pain and awareness of pain and how pain impacts fish. So firstly, do fish feel pain? I mean, obviously, they respond to a painful stimulus in certain ways. But is there evidence that they feel and are sort of mentally aware of pain kind of like we are? 
Yeah, it's important to distinguish uh, nociception, which is the, the registering uh, the, of a noxious stimulus, which could happen without any conscious awareness of the, of the uh, noxious event, and the actual experience of pain where the animal is consciously aware that this is bad, this hurts, uh, I don't like it, I want to get away from it. And the evidence is pretty strong, very strong, that uh, fishes uh, feel and experience pain. And uh, it comes from a number of different studies. It was actually a book published in 2010 called Do Fish Feel Pain? And Victoria Braithwaite, the biologist who, who wrote that book, has done a number of the important studies uh, on trout, in her case, showing that these representative bony fishes have the, have the requisite anatomy. They have uh, nerve pain receptors or nociceptors, you could call them, for uh, mechanical pain. They have different ones for chemical pain, the different ones for heat pain, temperature pain. So they have the sophisticated anatomy and these, of course, these receptors send signals to the brain, which then uh, causes a change in the behavior of the fish. So the fish will um, stop feeding if the mouth has been assaulted with a painful acid. Uh, they will rub the, may, they may eventually rub that part of the body against the substrate, presumably, maybe it's comparable to how we may rub a wound to maybe help to um, allay the pain. They will also change their behavior. They will avoid uh, sources of pain that they've had in the past they will be distracted and not avoid novel novel structures in their novel things put in their tanks so, which is uh, suggests that they may be distracted by the pain i think the most telling study of all though one that i like to uh, i'd be happy to describe briefly is one of um done by lynn snedden who's also done a lot of work on fish pain in which she um and her colleagues put uh, zebra fishes these are small fishes very commonly used in research in a, in a complex tank that had two chambers. One chamber was enriched with uh, vegetation and rocks and dimly lit, the kind of environment that they like to hang out in. And the adjoining chamber was barren and brightly lit, so there was nothing in there. And uh, perhaps not surprisingly, all of the zebrafishes spent all of their time in the enriched tank. And they continued to do so after some of them were injected with acid, which presumably lasts, it causes lasting pain. Um, and some of them were injected with uh, a saline, which presumably doesn't cause any lasting pain, until they the, they dissolved lidocaine, a, a painkiller, in the barren chamber. And when they did that, some of the fishes started to swim over to the barren side, the less preferred side, and would spend time there, despite it being normally undesirable place. Um, and it turns out they were just the ones who had been injected with acid. So for me, that's a pretty elegant and convincing demonstration of the experience of pain in a fish and the fish's wherewithal to uh, seek relief of the pain. So that's a pretty good example about how something like long-term or chronic pain would impact a fish, seeking out pain relief, even if the space you have to get pain relief or the way you have to get pain relief is really undesirable. Right. I mean, I think it's what's compelling about that study is that the, the animals are willing to pay a cost. It's like the economics of pain relief. They're willing to pay a cost. It's like uh, us having a, a toothache, uh, going to the dentist, knowing that we're going to have a, a needle to give us the anesthetic. Uh, but, uh, you know, being willing to do that because in the long, we're actually going to get pain relief uh, in the long term. Some of the pain studies also uh, very quickly address the secondary question of do fish have good memories and can they remember? And clearly they can if they're avoiding something that caused them pain in the past. Yeah, there's quite a lot of studies on, on memory in, in fishes and they, they certainly have good functional memories. Uh, 
this is, there was a study done on rainbow fishes and another small bony fish uh, by Australian researcher Cullen Brown. Uh, he uh, presented them with a with a with a, a mesh net that was moving from one side of the tank to the other, and there was a one little escape hole in the middle. And uh, uh, over the course of five trials, they they fairly quickly learned where this escape route was, and they went from being confused and sort of panicking on the first trial to calmly swimming through this opening, or quickly swimming through the opening on the last trial. And then he left things for eleven months, uh, which is about a third of the lifespan of these little rainbow fishes. And then when he tested them again for the first time in eleven months, it was as if it was the sixth trial. It was as if they hadn't missed a beat. They swam straight through the hole. Naive fishes who had not been exposed to that apparatus didn't know what to do, but they quickly learned to follow the other experienced rainbow fishes. And that's another thing that fishes are quite good at is observational learning. They uh, they watch other fishes and they see what they're doing. And if there's something useful to be gained from what the other ones are doing, they will model that behavior and they will, they will imitate them and uh, learn by what's called observational learning. When we think about questions of animal welfare, especially within our own food chain and production lines, oftentimes we look at the way cows are treated, the way pigs are treated, the way chickens are treated. And this is really the first time I had thought very carefully about how we farm or catch fish and how some of the, uh, the animal welfare problems uh, are really kind of ignored when it comes to a lot of our fishing requirements. Yeah, I think if we were if we were killing uh, terrestrial animals with them, I mean, it's bad enough how we do it as, as it is. But if we were killing them using the methods that fishes die typically in commercial and recreational fishing, which is to say uh, suffocation, uh, crushing, uh, decompression, uh, they're the most common among the most common ways. Uh, I, I think we would be horrified and mortified. And uh, and yet, as I'm trying to convince readers, and I think as I think the science shows, these are animals who are every bit as conscious and aware and capable of pain and suffering as are the terrestrial animals. Um, and where there's doubt, we should give them the benefit of the doubt. So um, that's that's a compelling reason why we need to look hard at our methods, uh, and we need to look seek ways to reduce the uh, the impact that we're having on these creatures. And we're all out of time, but listeners, there is also a fascinating section in Jonathan's book about fish sex and parenting. So if we have piqued your interest in fish, do check out Jonathan's book, What a Fish Knows, The Inner Lives of Our Underwater Cousins. Jonathan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Rochelle. And if you want to learn more about Jonathan Balcom... Uh, the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy, or his other writings. We have links to get you started available on the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. 
The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell. 